the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. Call him now at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622 and Ask the Lawyer. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Well, welcome again to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Thanks to David Kincaid for introducing us. We're on hallowed ground here at Wall Street and Broadway next to Trinity Church. And the show is in two parts, not necessarily equal parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through avoiding going to court, that's avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, if you have any questions, now's the time to give us a call because the second half of the show, we talk about politics, history, nostalgia, religion. And tonight we're going to be talking about history and religion and planned giving. So if you have a phone call, give us a call right now at one 866 970 one eight six six nine seven zero nine six two two. Now, our two guests tonight. Our two guests tonight. We're going to have Father Thomas Moore. That's not his birth name, but Father Thomas Moore is going to be here from the Dominican Friars, and we're going to have on Williamson Murray, who's a very noted historian, talking about the Savage War. His book about Savage War about the Civil War. He's going to be the keynote speaker for the Civil War Roundtable in September thirteenth. All right, we got a couple of people lined up for questions, so let's start with Rose in New Jersey. Yes, Rose, what's your question? Uh, hi, Mr. Connors. Um, I was wondering if you could clarify something for me. Um, my dad, who is widowed, has a revocable trust in which he um, put his house and his United States savings bonds, and upon his death, um, those are going to be distributed to my sister and myself. Okay. Now, he hasn't put um, his financial accounts, his savings, checking money market or IRA accounts into the trust um, because he's either named beneficiary, uh, beneficiaries on them or uh, payable on death accounts, which is fine. Um, so the question is, will those financial accounts upon his death, will they go directly to his named beneficiaries or whoever he has listed as payable on death, or do they get picked up as part of the pour-over will? No, they would go according to the named beneficiaries on the accounts. A will only okay. covers assets that, let's say, in this case, would be in your father's name alone. So if he has a uh-huh. named beneficiary, then it would not go according to the will. It would go to the named beneficiary. And you really don't need a revocable trust for bank accounts, because if you have a bank account, 
in trust for if you have a brokerage account transfer on death, an IRA account with named beneficiaries. Those are kind of trusts. It's mm-hmm. The revocable trust is for real estate. It's the only effective way to avoid probate on real estate is through a, you know, a trust agreement. So he has his house in a trust. U.S. savings bonds, I guess he wanted to put some cash there so you would have some uh, operating money you know, in one pot. Right, yeah, because those, those are the only two things he has yeah. in the um, in the revocable trust. But everything else, so then uh, whatever financial he, uh, accounts that he has, it goes directly to the beneficiaries that Correct. he names. Yep. Okay. And and does that, those rules, does that apply across the board? It doesn't matter what state? Pretty I mean, much it doesn't matter general? what state. There always might be, if somebody's married, there might be a claim mm-hmm. by a surviving spouse. But outside of that, mm-hmm. you know, that that's pretty much any state in the country. Okay, great. And I just want to say I love your show. It's very informative. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. All right, we got a question from Marie in Long Island. Yes, Marie, what's your question? Hi, Mike. My name is Marie, and I'm calling um, because my father is a veteran. Uh, he lives in Queens, and I was just wondering, is he eligible for, uh, would he be eligible for veteran benefits and uh, for Medicaid, or, or is it one or the other? It's not necessarily one or the other. Sometimes it is one or the other because if Medicaid covers everything, you're not going to get a you know a veteran's benefit. But sometimes what could happen is you get home care benefits through Medicaid. You pay for you know Medicaid pays for a home attendant, and maybe sometimes Medicaid doesn't pay everything, and that's where you can go to the VA. And if your father's a married veteran, they pay a little over two thousand a month. If he's a single veteran, eighteen hundred a month, and they would pay. Let's say for a lot of times the children get together and they help dad manage his assets or pay his bills or supervise the home attendance and do things like that. And in some cases, then, we can get the home care Medicaid to pay for the home attendant, and we can get the VA to pay, let's say, the children to do some other items. Or if Medicaid doesn't give you the hours you want, maybe we work both on the camp. But it is it is possible to get both. A lot of times in New York, Medicaid covers most of it, but... Yes, it's very possible to get both. And if you're eligible for home care Medicaid, ordinarily you're going to be eligible for uh, the VA benefit. Okay? Okay, great. Thanks, Mike. Thanks right, for thank your you. show. Thank you. All right, Beth, do you have a, an email question maybe we can get in here? I do indeed. Um, this is from Tom. We created an irrevocable trust in 2005. My mom has been in a nursing home for two years now. If we sell the house... Can my mother still get the $250,000 homeowner's exemption? Okay, yes. Now, of course, it depends how the trust was written, but I'm assuming, and of course it's always bad to make an assumption, but that's all I can do since I don't have the trust in front of me. I'm assuming there's language in the trust that gave your mother enough ownership interest in the property so that she would get the 250000 exclusion. And here's one thing, you know, I think a lot of people um, – misunderstand about a trust. A lot of times, you know, you put your son or daughter's name as trustee, and I think, well, I've given the house to my son and my daughter. I'm not the owner of the house anymore. Through a trust, you're still the owner of the property for tax purposes, which I think most people out there know if you sell your personal residence, your primary residence, the first $250,000 of capital gain is not taxed on the sale of your personal residence. That's 250 for husband, 250 for wife. In many cases, even a better deal for the surviving spouse if one of them passes away. And if you have a veteran's exemption, senior citizen, star program exemption, if your property's in a trust, you still keep those exemptions. So that's one of the reasons you do a trust. I mean, for the most part, and I keep I, I hear this 
question almost every day. Why don't I just give the house to my son? One, a hundred bad things can happen, but just for tax-wise, you know, a lot of people collect that senior citizen's exemption. They collect this, the veteran's exemption, the STAR program exemption. You give the house to your kids, especially if your kids don't live in the house and they're probably not senior citizens, you're going to lose all those exemptions. So just tax-wise, it's going to hurt you. And one of the worst things that can happen is that you have your residence you paid next to nothing for. You give it to your son or daughter. They don't live in the house, and they pay a huge capital gain at the end. It's so easy to get it out tax-free. And right now in New York, if you're a New York resident, we can get over $5,200,000 out tax-free in a trust. So, you know, if that's one of the things, if you want to protect your house, you can come see us at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Now, our next guest in the show, we're going to take a few more questions if anybody wants right now. So give us a call at 718-766. Where is the number here? I got it. I'm sorry. I'm a mental block. 866-970-9622. You give us any call at all about estate planning and elder law. And sometimes, you know, if you have a question about um, nursing home insurance, long-term care insurance, give us a call at 866-970-9622. I guess we'll take a short break, James, and we'll be back back in a few minutes. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, September 12th at Bocelli's Restaurante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Grasmere, Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. And on Wednesday, September 13th at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718 238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. 
Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. Okay, Beth, well, we just heard from Patrick Wayne on the John Wayne Cancer Institute, and we have a special event coming up in October. You want to tell us about it? This is going to be wonderful. Um, each For the last few years, we've met with the Wayne family um, for a, a huge cancer fundraiser done by Fanny, um, and we've been meeting at the Waldorf. They raise $40, $50 million for cancer research, and one of the recipients has been the John Wayne Cancer Institute. Um, this They're coming back this year. Um, and it, that event is going to be October the 10th, and Patrick Wayne is going to be receiving one of their big honors from all the, for all the work that he's done over the years for cancer research. They are also, um, Patrick Wayne is being so kind as to come to Brooklyn on October 9th, where we are going to have a, a cancer-raising um, party for and he's going to be there and Anita um, Lacava Swift, the John Wayne's granddaughter, is going to be there, and at least one of the physicians from the John Wayne Cancer Institute is going to come. So, if you are all tuckered out from Columbus Day um, events and you just want to come for a very nice evening. Um, October 9th, Bay Ridge Manor, um, which is at 476 76th Street in Brooklyn, from 6 to 9 p.m., and this is a Monday night. Um, we're going to have Patrick Wayne, and the way he put it, as you've heard our things, a man of true grit, John Wayne spoke with courage and honesty of his battle with the big C. The Wayne family followed in his footsteps by establish, establishing a renowned cancer research institute. We're going to have so much fun. Um, Pat's going to be there, and he's going to talk about being an actor in Hollywood, the golden years with his father. And then the doctors from the John Wayne Cancer Institute are going to be there. They'll answer your questions about the type of research that the institute does. And they're also going to tell you why they've enjoyed um, working at the Institute with the Wayne family. Um, and we're going to have auction items. And um, one of the auction items is an Andy Warhol print, which will be autographed by Patrick Wayne. Um, also, I do want to say this, that this has been the big year for Patrick Wayne to receive big honors. Um he joined his father in winning the Great Western Performers Hall of Fame honor um, award for the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum. This is exclusive. When you go back and look at the performers, it's, it's only like one a year that they give to people. So he's joined people like his father, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart. So this is a very cool. And, and what, did Joe, what did Patrick say to us? Well, he's just hoping, you know, that somebody's not uh, somebody upstairs <laughs> not saying give him the awards now because he won't be around much Doesn't longer. Have much longer. <laughs> well, we well, Patrick, hope Patrick will be on the show on 
uh, September 16th, I think it is, that Saturday. Um, and he, we'll be talking about the, the fundraiser in Brooklyn a little bit more. And he's going to be talking uh, some about his acting career and, you know, his father. And, and we're talking about the searches for a little bit because, you know, i got to talk about the searches because it's my favorite <laughs> film. But th- that's going to be September 16th that uh, Patrick Wayne is going to be on the show. But it's October 9th. You can make Patrick Wayne in person. Right. And don't think, oh, they're going to be a thousand people there and I won't get a chance to meet him. He's, he will stay you, there. You see Beth and me and we'll, yeah. we'll get you a picture with Patrick Wayne. I'd like to, if, if you are interested, because, uh, you know, I hope, it's, I hope we fill up the event. But get, get your name in early. Give us a call for, at Connors & Sullivan. Ask for Monica Fay at Connors and & Sullivan, and our phone number for this event also is 718-238-6500, October 9th, John Wayne Cancer Institute fundraiser with Patrick Wayne and Anita LaCava-Swift, the granddaughter of John Wayne. She will also talk about what it was like to be the granddaughter of one of Americans, America's greatest icons. Now, in a couple of minutes, we're going to be talking to Father Thomas Moore of the Dominicans, the Dominican Friars. And, you know, just to set up the interview, again, as many of you know, we do a lot of our interviews in our Brooklyn studio, you know, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, right around the corner from the Bay Ridge Manor where we're going to have the fundraiser. And he's talking about the different artifacts in the room. And, of course, we have a couple of different things in there, but we have a lot of pictures of the guests who've been on our show, like you, O'Brien, and, of course, Patrick Wayne and... A lot of baseball players like Ron Hunt and Jay Hook and Randy Jackson and Orlando Cepeda. And Father Thomas Moore, unfortunately, is a Pittsburgh Fired fan. Uh. So that's why he makes the comments. Before we started the interview, we talked a little bit about does Bill Mazeroski belong in the Hall of Fame? Because that's going to be our topic next week. We're going to be talking about Hall of Fame baseball players, and this guy's got a book out. Jay Jaffe, and he doesn't think Bill Mazeroski belongs in the Hall of Fame, but he believes the steroid uses belong in the Hall of Fame, and we're going to have Ron, Com- Ron Hunt comment on that. We need to t- move quickly. Take a short break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? 
I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call 888-943-2646. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, a lot of times on the show, we talk about plan giving. And to broaden our conversation about plan giving, we decided to invite in Father Thomas Moore of the Dominican Friars. How are you doing today, Father? Okay, Michael. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Excited now, to be out here in this wonderful studio you have, surrounded by all these um, terrific artifacts of... Um, well, not necessarily my favorite baseball teams, but certainly some of the greats. Well, you're a Pittsburgh Pirate fan, That's so we'll right. forgive you for that. <laughs> At least for the next few minutes, anyway. <laughs> right. Well, actually, you some great Pittsburgh Pirates. Roberto Clemente, Ralph Kiner, Paul Wehner, Hannes Wagner. Hannes Wagner is one of my favorite all-time baseball players. You don't happen to have his baseball card, do you? No, I don't. If I did, I'd probably okay. be retired right now. <laughs> <laughs> I knew somebody who, who sold the Hannes Wagner card for like $100,000 30 years ago. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. Interesting. All right, but I don't think we're talking about Hannes Wagner cards unless no. you want to make a gift of a Hannes Wagner card to the Dominicans. That would be terrific, but um, don't do that nor through the normal channels. Just contact me privately if you're interested in okay. something along those lines. Okay, so if you have a Hannes Wagner baseball card out there, give Father Thomas more a call. Now, seriously, though, you're on a new mission, so to speak. What's it about? Well, um, I work for what's called the Dominican Friars Foundation, and um, what we are is um, the advancement effort of the Dominican Friars here in the Northeast, um, headquartered in New York City at 65th and Lexington, and our mission is um, to promote our work. Now, I probably should back up a little bit here. What is a Dominican Friar? Okay, well, the, a Dominican is a colloquial term. Um, used to describe the order of friars preachers, right? The orders of, or the order of friars preachers were founded in 1216 by Saint Dominic. So, so the order is referred to by Dominicans. If you've um, if you've been in the neighborhood of the Upper East Side where we have a couple of churches, you might have seen Dominican priests walking around. We would be the guys dressed in all white. Some often mistake us for Franciscans. The easiest way to know the difference is Franciscans are traditional dressed in in a, a brown habit and um, we Dominicans are in white habits so the white habited friars uh, founded in Europe um, came to the United States uh, along with with a priest named Father Fenwick who became the first Archbishop of Cincinnati and um, began ministering in Ohio but Father Fenwick saw himself really as a city man and had the aspiration to um, to get to New York City and finally migrated his way back to the water and um, set up here in New York, and that's where we are here today. 
And what is your mission? Well, our mission is to is to attract financial resources to support our work throughout the United States. Chiefly, a lot of those expenses today consist of um, paying for the formation of our many friars. Um, some of your listeners might have heard that, generally speaking, throughout the United States, there is um, a decline in the number of men willing to pursue ministry, um, specifically as Catholic priests. Uh, we, on the other hand, have... Um, the opposite problem, which is a good problem to have, but still a problem. We have about 70 men in formation now training to become Dominican priests. Um, they come from many different backgrounds. Uh, I myself was, was a lawyer for about eight years or so uh, before I entered religious life. My um, One of my classmates, uh, Father John Devaney, was himself a um, radio DJ out in, uh, in L.A. before he entered. So we have men coming in from different, some different walks of life and um, promoting our education and preparation of these men for the priesthood is our chief goal right now. Obviously, it costs money to do that. How do you raise the money? Well, we raise it through a lot of um, requests, really, of people from um, from different avenues and backgrounds of life. And uh, what we try to do is is invite them to become part of our mission uh, through their contributions. Now, some of those are uh, direct contributions; others are through vehicles such as plan giving, um, naming the Dominican friars in someone's will. Um, gifting us through uh, financial assets that we can hopefully put to good use um, when someone leave this, leaves this life and enters the next. Now, I, I just want to bring out this point. You know, I know there are a lot of clients that we have and a lot of members of our audience, and they might be real estate rich and cash poor. And one of the ways you can make a gift is through your will or trust. After you're gone, let's say, to leave a percentage or a set amount to a charitable organization, because I know there are a lot of senior citizens out there. They live on a fixed income. They really don't have that much money to give, but they can, after their house is sold, give a portion of that to the church, the charity, the Dominican friars. Yeah, and we, we certainly have the um, the mechanisms in place to accept and accommodate those kind of gifts and are grateful to welcome folks willing to pursue such an option into our Dominican family and um, become real active members of our ministry by supporting the work of the Friars. Now, where are you stationed, Father? I'm stationed at 65, 65th and Lexington in Manhattan. Which is a beautiful church. Which is a tremendous church. Um, I like to think of it as a real jewel of the province. I know I've seen you there uh, several times. And um, we're, we're very fortunate to have it. That church actually will be celebrating its 100th anniversary next year in May of 2018. We're looking forward to that. So that's right on Park Avenue there? No, uh, Lexington. Lexington. Yeah, just, 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 a, just a block or two off Park Avenue. Okay. Yeah. So if, you know, holiday of obligation or regular day, what... You have masses there every day, I assume. We do. Uh, we have at least three masses there every day, and um, it it um, it's a, it's a lively place. There's a number of traditional shrines we have there, um, a number of relics. One of the shrines that we've just opened is the only shrine to Saint John Paul II in New York, um, and what we have there is part of the sash that St. John Paul was wearing when the assassination attempt was made on his life in May of 1981. That was a gift to us from the postulator for, uh, for St. John Paul's cause, um, Slavomir Oder, who actually will be coming here in October to celebrate with us um, on October 12th, a special mass that we're having there at St. Vincent Ferrer 
in honor of St. John Paul II and, um, and uh, Our Lady of Fatima and her apparitions. Um, part of the connection is due to the fact that uh, John Paul II attributed his survival of that attempt made on his life to Our Lady's intercession. And as a result, he placed the bullet that was um, lodged inside of him in the crown of Our Lady of Fatima in um, Portugal. What we have here at 65th and Lexington is a kind of parallel shrine because we have uh, the original statue of which um, the Our Lady of Fatima statue in Portugal was modeled from in our church, in an alcove in our church at St. Vincent Fair, along with a part of the sash that St. John Paul was wearing on that fateful day. Changing the subject slightly, when people make planned giving, obviously you don't get a lot of contributions from poor people. You get it from people who've accumulated at least some measure of wealth over the years. Sometimes so, some of our clients feel that the Catholic Church is almost opposed to the middle class, the upper middle class, that you have to be poor to be holy. Well, I think that um, Jesus himself made several references to means through which, look, we, we see Jesus in the gospel encountering wealthy individuals, all right? Um, some like Zacchaeus who climb up the tree to see him, all right? And Jesus spots him and welcomes him, him into his ministry. Uh, the church the church has traditionally um, survived largely off multitudes of contributions from poor individuals, and that's still the case today. Uh, but one of the things that those who have wealth, even modest wealth, uh, can do is make of their wealth a kind of concretized symbol of the affection that they have for the church. So what do I mean by that? Well, think of giving a gift, all right, particularly to a family member. Could be a son or a daughter or a niece or a nephew or a goddaughter or a godson, um, something that, um, that he or she really wants. And you purchase it for them. Now that gift might be, if it's a, if it's a little child, a present or something he or she has long wanted for, and are excited to receive it and open it up, and their eyes are wide and they're they're thrilled to have it and thrilled at you for giving them. Right. Well, that gift, that gift for you is more than just the thing itself. It is a concretized symbol of affection that you have spiritually in your soul for the recipient and given over to him or her through the medium of that gift, right? So that gift becomes a sign of something that is in your soul, a concrete spiritual sign of your affection for the person you gave it to. We take that same philosophy at the Dominican Friars Foundation um, with, our, with our gifts and with, with the community of supporters that we have. Uh, we want we want it to be more than mere philanthropy. We want it to be concretized symbols of uh, of affection that people hold spiritually, that they can give to us and include in our work and made part of our very efforts going forward. Some people, when we're talking about history, who is the most famous Dominican friar? Well, I think here one would have to point to Saint Thomas Aquinas, um, who is one of the most significant. Um, contributors to Catholic theology throughout history. Uh, St. Thomas is a 13th century figure who wrote uh, voluminous, voluminous writings, um, but probably most famous for the Summa Theologica, which has served as the background for a lot of philosophical and theological education of not only Catholic priests, but Catholic stu students of Catholic theology in general. Now, you know, a lot of people would say, hey, wait a minute, how significant can be a guy who lived 800 years ago 
Why is he significant today? What is what insights does he have to the human condition? Well, one of the things that I think uh, is most striking about St. Thomas Aquinas and is really worth resurrecting is um, a lot of people take the take the approach toward Christianity is if it's an exercise uh, almost in arithmetic where my goal during life is to chalk up good actions, avoid bad actions. And at the end of my life, um, God is going to run some arithmetic and he's going to assign me to one place on the other based on how the math works out. Right. Well, it's not described like that anywhere in the gospel. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas points out the human beings are programmed for happiness we seek happiness, and God made us that way, right? We have a faculty of desire that propels us through life to seek to be happy, and that desire is planted in us ultimately to drive us to seek God, where ultimate happiness can be attained. So what that meant for St. Thomas is his approach toward the moral life begins with happiness. It begins with seeking happiness, not with following rules. Now, the rules have a place, right? The rules have a place, just like those of you who are parents probably recognize that um, sometimes your kids are capable of wanting things that will do them harm. They just can't see it, all right? A third candy bar. A third candy bar seems like a good idea after you have two, right? But it's often the parents' jobs to say, no, that's a bad idea. Now, that's a simple example, right? But what St. Thomas explains is that we are always in that kind of relationship of son or daughter with God, right? So to the extent that there are rules, those rules are designed for our happiness when we can't see it, right? But the moral life is one that's driven toward happiness. One of the things we're trying to do, um, one of the things that Dominican friars here in the Northeast are trying to do is um, extend that message and recapture some of that great history of St. Thomas and make that more available to Catholics today. And supporters of our foundation are supplying us with the means to continue this ministry. Now, how can somebody find out more about your foundation, your ministry? Well, one of the easiest ways is um, through our website, which is dominicanfriars.org. That's www.dominicanfriars.org. And there on, we on that website, you'll see um, the means through which we invite people to become part of our ministry. Uh, we have different parts of that site dedicated to plan giving options and, um, and um, ways that you can reach out to us, whether through email or through phone, to discuss this further. And I, I personally am um, willing to come out and visit someone who might be interested in becoming part of our ministry through a planned giving vehicle or um, any other way that, that, that might be available to them at that time. Can you repeat the uh, website and your phone number? Sure. It's um, Dominican Friars, D-O-M-I-N-I-C-A-N. F-R-I-A-R-S dot org, DominicanFriars.org. If you'd like to call and um, discuss a planned giving gift, it's best to just call me personally, Father Thomas Moore. I'll give you my number. That's 212-288-5872. Again, that's Father Thomas Moore at 212-288-5872. Now, is Thomas Moore your given name? Well, I Father Thomas Moore is given, but not by my parents. It's um, it's given by uh, someone that we refer to as a novice master. Now, when you enter religious life, especially um, 
and it's especially valuable for someone transitioning from you know, a life of career, all right, a normal adult life, all right. You need a year to think about whether you've made the right decision and prepare yourself for what really is a fundamental change in living. So it starts with a novitiate where you're separated for a year um, from basically the outside world. No TV, no no traditional means, no no going to stores, driving around, movies, all those things. And basically, that's a year designed to um, rethink the decision that you've made prior to making a um, commitment through the vows of your life. And as part of entering the novitiate, uh, there is an old venerable tradition of being assigned a new name. Right. So Thomas More was the name given to me after a 16th century saint, patron saint of lawyers and politicians, by my novice master, uh, largely on account of, um, of my previous career. Had I been able to select a name for myself, I think I probably would have chosen Michael. Um, saint Michael is uh, the church where I received all my sacraments, save ordination for the priesthood. Um, and if he had consulted me, uh, that's the name I probably would have advanced. But um, but God's providence has spoken. So from then on out, it was Father Thomas More. Well, you have a vow of obedience. That's right. That's, that's the most important and hardest one. Right. And hardest one. Well, thank you for your work. Thank you for coming on Connor's Corner. Father. All right. Appreciate it. We hope it. to see you in the near future. All right. Thank you, Michael. It's been great. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man, but there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How it will affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors & Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now, we're very pleased to have Williamson Murray, professor. He's going to be talking at the Civil War Roundtable on September 13th. 
at 5.30 p.m. The name of his book is The Savage War. How are you doing today, Professor Murray? I am doing fine. Uh, a little rainy down here. I guess it's uh, been a little rainy up there, too. Right. The Savage War, A Savage War, a military history of the Civil War. What, right. What is the point behind your book? Well, um, I'm a European military historian, so there are a number of things that, uh, uh, and mostly I've written uh, about Europe, but I have written, a, I did write a, a, a book on the Iran-Iraq War. Um, but most of my, uh, uh, sort of my hobby is reading lots of Civil War stuff. And uh, uh, it struck me that uh, uh, there was a good deal of parochialism in the uh, American uh, uh, history of the Civil War done by American historians who don't seem to have paid much uh, attention to the larger patterns of history, which I think the Civil War fits into, um, as well as some obvious things that um, aren't obvious to Americans because we live here, um, the distances involved uh, in the Civil War. Um, and uh, I started writing, uh, I started reading extensively in the Civil War when I started teaching uh, European military history uh, at Ohio State in the uh, 70s. Um, and I just uh, kept at it. And um, um, so over the, a period of time of about 20 years, um, I uh, developed, uh, I think, a number of unique perspectives that are quite simply uh, uh, not in most uh, or any uh, uh, Civil War histories. And Jim McPherson, when he read the draft, uh, um, uh, pointed these out as uh, really uh, unique uh, in terms of writings on the Civil War. So maybe we'll probably discuss some of that. What's the most unique point that you came up with? Well, the first is rather obvious. I was giving a lecture uh, at... Uh, um, uh, in Ger asked to give a lecture in Germany, uh, and I thought the Germans knew a lot about World War II, um, uh, but they probably didn't know much about the Civil War. So I, I gave a, a talk on the American Civil War, and one of the things I looked at were was the sort of distances and spaces involved in the American Civil War compared to Europe, um, and there's a huge difference. Uh, for example, uh, the uh, area of the uh, Confederate States of America um, t uh, took in approximately uh, 780,000 square miles, um, the, uh, which is equivalent to Portugal, Spain, Italy, France, uh, uh, Germany, the Low Countries, Denmark, uh, uh, and, and Switzerland. So. Uh, it's a huge territory, and so the problems that confronted American uh, military, the northern military forces, was the, the projection of power over continental distances. And so that's that's the first uh, sort of so, sort of major thing that uh, has not received enough attention uh, uh, from American uh, uh, historians. It, and the result of that, of course, is that. Um, uh, is that uh, logistics had to play a huge role in the Civil War. Uh, and again, I think uh, we need to have uh, some more substantive work done on uh, logistics in the Civil War and the projection of military power. Yeah, because I think, and I, I know there's been a lot of research and so forth debunking that, but I think it was years ago when I went to grammar school, it was like a foregone conclusion. The North had all the resources and men, and they were going to win the war, and it was just a matter of how long the South could drag it on. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, 
that is, of course, the uh, southern uh, uh, narrative of history, uh, which has dominated uh, the writing uh, and still dominates to a certain extent uh, um, the, the writing and thinking about the Civil War among the American uh, population, even those who read a fair amount. Um, the second issue, of course, is, the, is that the Civil War um, is really a social military revolution in military history, uh, um, and it um, uh, foresees virtually everything that happens in World War I, uh, the combination of the Industrial Revolution with uh, the French Revolution, which is a huge change in, in the nature of war, and again, um, this is essential for the projection of military uh, power um, uh, by the North, uh, and it took a considerable length of time to devote to mobilize. Uh, and again, one of the figures that uh, um, just astonishes me uh, still uh, is the fact that the, uh, um, the the federal army in in 1860 is 17,000 men. Um, and by the, the uh, uh, winter of 1864, 63-64, the Union is, has one million men in uniform and 600,000 men on the sharp end. That's a huge mobilization and expansion of military power. Um, and the large number was, of course, essential not only for the uh, – um, for the actual fighting, but for the projection of, of uh, logistical lines of communications. Going into that, what was Sherman's problems when he marched to Atlanta and Atlanta to Savannah? Yeah, one of, one of the, again, interesting things that uh, Grant doesn't talk much about in his memoirs, uh, Sherman covers a little bit, um, but in the period uh, between uh, 18, uh, between um, uh, the uh, victory at uh, Chattanooga, uh, and um, um, military operations uh, um, in May of 1864, um, Sherman and Grant, because, of course, Grant is in charge in the West until uh, early March 1864, um, spend a huge amount of time building up a logistical infrastructure, um, redoing all the railroads from uh, Nashville to, uh, uh, to Chattanooga, um, building forts along the way at every railroad thing, building huge supply dumps, uh, large supply dumps of rails and ties, um, uh, and then building up a huge uh, dump, uh, supply dump, uh, when uh, in Chattanooga when Sherman begins his move south so, so they can repeat the same process as they move to Atlanta. Uh, and the result of that is, is that in the uh, – in the period of 1863-64, the uh, crucial line of communication uh, um, supplying Sherman's army um, is never broken for more than a single day. And again, this is over territory and terrain where you don't have the greatest roads in the world. Well, and, and, yeah, one of the things that uh, that uh, amazed Sheridan when he visited the uh, uh, the, Fr the uh, Germans in 1870 during the Franco-Prussian War was how good the roads in Europe were compared to American roads. In, in America, it's just tracks. Uh, what was crucial, um, absolutely crucial, of course, was uh, the was the railroads and the capacity to repair railroads. Again, you know, we found uh, my my co-author and I found lots of neat little uh, uh, things, such as the fact that uh, twenty percent of the South's steel produ uh, uh, iron production 
um, in the war went to uh, building ironclads that were absolutely useless. Um, uh, and none of it went to rebuilding uh, rails. And, of course, this is a modern war uh, in every sense. And so infrastructure has to be taken care of. Uh, the South concentrated on the military side for obvious reasons because they were uh, outnumbered, but um, paid virtually no attention to the infrastructure. We're listening to Professor Williamson Murray talking about his book, The Savage War. He's going to be the opening speaker for the Civil War Roundtable on September 13th. Professor, when you start comparing Lee and Grant, which, of course, every historian does when you start talking about the last year of the war, what what is your your opinion and perception of those two generals? Um, Lee is a superb tactician uh, and operational commander. There's no doubt about that. And he built, uh, established a culture in the Army of Northern Virginia that, that was quite exceptional in terms of uh, the willingness of commanders uh, to uh, take the initiative, uh, uh, Jackson and Longstreet being the best examples, but there are plenty of other examples, Hill and et cetera. Um, Grant established the same kind of army, and again, one of the things that we uh, emphasize in the book is that for a whole variety of reasons, each one of the major armies, which is, for example, uh, the uh, Army of the Potomac, the Army of Northern Virginia, the Army of, uh, of the Tennessee, which is Grant's army, the Army of Tennessee, and the Army of, uh, uh, which is Bragg's army, and the Army of, uh, of, of the Cumberland, each one of those armies establishes a very different command culture and culture of, of, in terms of leadership. Uh, and the result of that it shows very show, uh, clearly uh, in terms of uh, their military effectiveness on the battlefield and explains a great deal about, if you will, the difficulties, for example, of the Army of, of, um, of uh, the Potomac because it was very much uh, McClellan's creature even after he'd gone. So when we talk about Grant's leadership – um, when he's leading an army uh, which has a culture in which he, he can count on the core commanders to take the initiative uh, and to show some drive, which is out in the West, um, he is by far and away uh, Lee's uh, equal um, uh, um, in terms of operational tactical competence. When he comes to the uh, uh, East, what he discovers, of course, is an army that uh, the Army of the Potomac, which is incapable of showing the initiative, always moves slowly, um, never takes a chance, um, and that goes from the top to the bottom. And um, the result for for uh, for Grant is, I think, considerable, um, uh, and Meade as well, considerable, um, if you will. Uh, um, uh, annoyance, but um, it again reflects a, uh, a very different culture than Grant has been, was used to. Now, I think where Grant is is the superb general of of American military history is at the strategic level. Um, almost from the beginning, um, Grant understood, if you will, the political dynamisms of the war. Uh, and understood uh, uh, what Lincoln was trying to do um, very well and played a major role 
um, in 64 and 65 in ensuring that the various armies of uh, the North uh, cooperated in, if you will, uh, Lincoln's uh, strategic vision. Now, in the, in the final couple of minutes we have, what is what is the last point you would like to make about a savage war? I think it's it's it is a military history that uh, incorporates a far wider understanding of where um, the history, Western history of war goes. It incorporates, if you will, uh, and pushes the Civil War um, into the Western context, uh, which is uh, simply not true of most uh, Civil War histories. All right. So if you want to learn more, September 13th, 3 West Club. Professor Murray will be there. Will you have copies of your books to be autographed? Um, I'm sure Princeton would be delighted to uh, um, to provide that. They did that at a thing I gave at the Grant uh, um, uh, at the Grant uh, um, uh, birthday uh, discussion uh, in April. All right. So we look forward to seeing you then. Have a good summer, Professor. Thank you. You guys have a great summer too. 718-341-9811. 718-341-9811. You got to call for reservations. We got September 13th. Professor Murray. Cost non-member $60. See you there. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.